Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and one of today's co-hosts. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that provides access to the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome Allison O'Neill, Chief Medical Officer at Surface Oncology. Thanks so much for joining us today, Allison. Well, thank you, Rahul. I'm very delighted to be here. So, Allison, to kick us off, we'd love to learn a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Happy to share. So I am a physician, specifically by clinical training, a neuro-oncologist. I trained initially at University of Michigan and then did my fellowship training at Memorial Sloan Kettering and really spent the first half of my career as an academic neuro-oncologist focused on treating patients with primary malignancies of the central nervous system and obviously complications due to other types of cancers that affected the nervous system. About 15 years ago, at that time, I was on faculty at Mass General, made the transition into biotech. Really, it was an opportunity to work in a small company that was focused on developing new treatments for primary brain tumors. And it was an opportunity to really work on drug development from the other side of the table to go from being a clinician investigator to really being somebody who was more in the weeds, if you will, in therapeutic development with the potential to impact a broader range of patients by bringing new therapeutics forward. Three years ago, I joined Surface Oncology, initially heading up clinical development from the medical side, and then more recently was made chief medical officer. And at Surface, we're focused on immuno-oncology approaches, which I think is a really fascinating and incredibly impactful change in oncology landscape. And Surface has a great culture, a very deep scientific expertise in the immune system, and has been able to prosecute in terms of developing drugs against novel IO targets, drugs that we really think can add to the advantages we've seen with the checkpoint inhibitors by really uncovering new immune checkpoints. Great. Thanks, Allison. Curious to understand what your thinking was at the time when you went from MGH to pursuing a career in biotech and what was your motivation there? Yeah. So clearly not an easy decision, but one at the time that I I certainly thought was going to be a chance to do something different and exciting. And clearly I haven't really looked back. For me, it was the opportunity, as I said, to really look at drug development from perhaps a more impactful point of view. You know, as an individual investigator, you have the real huge advantage of actually having that direct patient contact and working with individual patients. But from the standpoint of really having a lot of impact in terms of how studies are designed or how you're able to really try to move a new therapeutic forward, it's a little bit more limited. And by moving to biotech, or I should say the industry in general, it's a way to have an impact at a different point. And potentially, if you're part of drug development in a successful way, really have a large impact on a variety of patients with different types of cancer. It's probably worth stating that although my particular clinical expertise is neuro-oncology, after that first jump to biotech, I actually branched out and have worked really more broadly in the oncology space 
focused predominantly on solid tumor drug development. But again, it's the opportunity to kind of keep expanding, keep growing yourself, developing expertise in new areas of oncology. And that has really continued and continues to drive me, though there certainly are moments when I misdirect patient care as well. Great. Now, as a follow on, as we follow the arc of your career, you had a stint at Santa Fe as well, and would love to understand you know, what that experience was like and what are some of the lessons that you learned working in such a large organization? Yeah, absolutely. And I always say there's no one perfect environment, but you have to kind of figure out where your own skill sets and where your own particular approaches to problems are going to flourish. So I, I really enjoyed my time at Santa Fe. It was an opportunity to work, obviously, at a very large global organization that had deep, deep expertise across anything. If you were, you know, working on a taxane, you had 20 people that you could, you know, call on the phone who'd been involved in taxane development for years. So it was rewarding in that sense, but also I would say very hard to feel as though you as an individual were having a tremendous impact. You know, you're part of a much larger team. But it's a way, for me at least, to get exposure to the broader arc of drug development, to spend time in late stage development and understand a lot more about that transition of a drug from that development into registrational phases and then into commercialization, which I think is is a hard experience to get in most biotechs because so many biotechs, you're really focused much more in the early stages. And it's a minority that make that transition all the way through into commercialization. And so I think those sorts of experiences you're much more likely to get in pharma than in biotech. But for me personally, that small group environment and the ability to work with a really cohesive team is something that I found much more in biotech. Certainly at Surface, I feel as I've landed at a company that has that tremendous culture that really drives people to be passionately committed and really sort of brings out the best in terms of camaraderie. Yeah, it's always tough to find the best of both worlds. It's great when you can. I was wondering about the challenges and opportunities in the immuno-oncology space. That's a great question. It's obviously, as I said, been something that with the emergence of checkpoint therapy, we've seen you know broad impacts across an array of solid tumors, which have traditionally been so difficult to treat with you know conventional chemotherapeutics and other modalities, small molecule drugs that we've had at our disposal. It's obviously got its challenges in that it is much more difficult to, I would say, disentangle the immune response mechanism and not nearly as directed as when we're able to look at things like genetically driven tumors where we can target a particular driver with a small molecule. It has a potentially much broader arc of influence in terms of across tumor types, but it can also be much more challenging in terms of deconvoluting exactly who are the right patients? How do we select them? What are the right indications for us to go into? As we move forward, and for me, I believe we're really just at the start of understanding IO therapies and how best to understand how we combine these drugs. And that's going to remain a, you know, a challenge for years to come. How do we choose the right combinations, deconvolute the best ways of putting these agents together in terms of unleashing an immune response, which again, can be curative for many of these patients. So it's what drives me, but it is also things that keep me awake at night in terms of challenges that are not easy to solve. 
for many of these newer agents, we know that the real impact is very likely to be in combination therapies. And that means automatically you're looking at longer studies that take you know, more patients and more time to come to fruition. And Alison, with that background now on, on IO, would love to unpack the work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Surface Oncology and your specific approach, as well as where the pipeline stands now. Yeah, no, we've had some really exciting news in the past couple of months. We've been able to move two of our wholly owned assets forward into the clinic, currently phase one, heading very rapidly to phase two with both of them. The first is SRF388, which is an antibody that is targeting IL-27. And Surface is really the only company that is bringing forward an agent targeting this particular molecule. And we've been able to demonstrate some monotherapy activity, even in our phase one study, which I don't know how much you're aware of the IO space, but that's a fairly unique thing to be able to do. So we've been really thrilled to see it. It's early days yet in terms of the evaluation of this drug. But as I say, we're really excited to share that data at ASCO and move the drug forward into phase two. We also have a second agent, SRF617, which again is targeting a different type of immune checkpoint on the adenosine axis. And here again, we're the first company that has been able to share some clinical data looking at targeting CD39 in particular. It's been exciting times at Surface moving forward with some encouraging responses, and that has validated some of our scientific thinking around these agents and around how we're choosing to move them forward in terms of particular indications. So exciting times ahead, a great time to be developing our teams and being able to kind of push forward. I mentioned that we have obviously some challenges in IO in terms of knowing how important combinations can be. And again, I think at Surface, we've been really fortunate to have forged some partnerships with companies like Merck and Roche and Arcus Biosciences that are allowing us to explore those combinations efficiently. Great. And Allison, from an indication selection perspective, you've had a great career in biotech. I'm sure our listeners would be interested in, is there a particular framework that you tend to go back to or how you assess which indications you should pursue next? Well, I think obviously that is so dependent upon the target. And really, we have a very strong translational team at Surface that spends an awful lot of time thinking about those questions as well. And we really try to have that deep understanding of the immune system and what we know about where these targets are expressed. Are there particular oncology indications where we have evidence that these targets are relevant? And that usually is really what informs a lot of our early development decisions. Again, as we understand more about how these mechanisms of action converge, it may be a much broader group of indications that we go after. But in terms of our initial thoughts, we really try to remain very focused on where the biology is telling us we're likely to have the biggest impact. Great. You mentioned partnerships and the landscape around partnerships has changed quite a bit over the last several decades. We'd love to hear your thoughts around how you think that landscape has changed and why you think it has changed over the last couple of decades. Wow, that's a toughie. <laughs> uh, you know, from my point of view, in terms of our current focus on partnerships, as I say, it's certainly been a way for us to leverage getting access to important combinatorial agents and being able to really look early on in a drug's development rather than late in the drug's development at how we can fruitfully combine agents and get to hopefully better, more meaningful responses for patients. 
I don't think I'm going to tackle the broader sort of business development aspect of that question. Sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Outside of my wheelhouse, for sure. <laughs> yeah. The past year and a half has sort of really thrown a monkey wrench into the clinical operations of a lot of companies. I'm wondering how Surface has dealt with COVID shutdowns and all of the impacts that it's brought to your research. Yeah, that's a great point, James. I want to address that sort of in two separate buckets. There's obviously the bucket of how it has affected day-to-day operations within our company in general, as well as the impact on how we run clinical trials and the impact that we're seeing at our investigative sites and for the patients who are participating in our trial. So maybe I'll start with the second piece first. In terms of that second piece, obviously, throughout our industry, you know, COVID and the sort of changes in workload for various hospitals and sites has has had a huge impact on clinical trials in general. I do think for oncology, perhaps there's been somewhat less of an impact simply because so many of the patients who are being treated on clinical studies in oncology really have life-threatening issues that cannot wait. For us, I think we were very fortunate in terms of working with a variety of sites and in some ways, obviously trying to work closely with our sites in terms of how they had to flex and with the FDA guidance, allowing ourselves to make modifications where it was prudent to do so, to allow for telehealth visits that did not require patients to come into the clinic and potentially have exposures. We also, I think, had the good fortune of having a mixture of sites geographically as well as the types of sites that we work with, some of whom are dedicated freestanding phase one sites that may not have had the same sorts of impacts that we saw at some of the larger hospitals where the entire hospital system could be at risk of sort of uh, being overwhelmed by COVID care. So I think it's a combination of things, but certainly being proactive about how we worked with our sites and investigators allowed us to stay on track in terms of our enrollments and continuing to hopefully do the best we could for the patients on our studies. From a sort of company point of view, again, speaks to the sort of emphasis on culture and emphasis on really trying to make certain that we're making the best decisions for our employees. We were able to go through a complete shutdown early on and found that, you know, remarkably enough, other than the things obviously that would require going on in the lab, people were able to make that adjustment to working remotely very successfully. And that was certainly well supported. As we moved forward, I think we took a very staged approach and a very cautious staged approach to allowing essential work within the labs to start up once it was safe to do so, but really limiting the number of folks that were coming into the office, making sure that we were following really good social distancing protocols, masking and everything else. As we've moved forward and certainly with the availability and widespread acceptance of vaccine uptake by our employees, We've been able now to allow a somewhat larger group of people into the office. But again, it has been very staged and with the idea that we really want to do this in the safest way possible and allow for people to have some flexibility as we understand sort of what going back to work is likely to look like. Undoubtedly, it's going to change in a probably permanent way how we think about work in the office versus work from home and understand what that hybrid model is likely to look like. I've been very gratified at the way we've been able to respond to those challenges and keep our employees actually feeling connected 
in spite of Zoom fatigue. I think we all feel that, yeah. But we're all getting better with it. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Allison, you hinted on that there's been a lot of changes that have been made. And I think from our perspective, it's remarkable to see how our industry has adapted and continued to push important R&D work forward. I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, are there one or two things that you think are long-term changes that continue to be in place after the pandemic is done? I sure do. You know, I, as I say, I, I, I certainly think for our industry, seeing how it was possible for so many people to continue to be productive while working remotely is probably going to continue to push for more flexibility in terms of allowing that to happen for people who aren't necessarily needing to be in the lab. But one of the challenges to overcome is obviously then how do we still remain connected and keep people feeling like they are part of a single group working together? So I think that's a challenge we're still going to be working through. But I certainly think that level of flexibility is probably here to stay in some degree. On the sort of clinical trial side of things, I do believe this is going to push for us to really try to be as thoughtful as possible about what's required in terms of in-person visits for patients in trials versus what might be able to be done via telemedicine. I mean, I, I think the telemedicine aspect of things is probably here to stay and we'll have to figure out, you know, how we integrate that as effectively as we can in a way that certainly doesn't compromise, you know, safety evaluations and things like that. Certainly, the remote monitoring piece is probably also going to be something that continues uh, forward as I'm sure it's more convenient for sites to be able to manage that. And with the idea that maybe in-person monitoring is done less frequently and, and more as we approach final database lock rather than something that we're asking monitors to go in every month or every six weeks. So I think that there are a lot of those sorts of operational pieces that will continue as we move forward. And certainly in general, I think in healthcare, we're likely to see more telemedicine. Yes, I certainly agree, Alison, and hope that some of these changes over the last year and a half are, are here to stay, as I think they've been very much positive in terms of helping us think through what is possible with software and technology nowadays. Yeah. And certainly a positive in terms of the patient experience as well, right? Yeah. I mean, for them, you know, avoiding having to come to the doctor for a recheck every week or every two weeks, if possible, it is only going to improve quality of life. So, yeah, certainly agree. Well, on that note, Allison, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Surface Oncology. It was, it was great to learn more about it. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Rahul. I really enjoyed the opportunity to tell you about what we're doing at Surface. Hope that it was helpful to our broader biotech community. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.